Welcome to The People's Lawyer, a podcast from the National Association of Attorneys General, the nonpartisan organization representing America's attorneys general. In each episode, we'll explore the role of the 56 state and territory AGs as chief legal officers for their states and their work protecting the rule of law and the U.S. Constitution. My name is Allison Gilmore, and I'm chief communications officer at the National Association of Attorneys General. In today's episode, Montana Attorney General and NAG President Tim Fox is joined by Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum. Well, thank you, uh, Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum of Oregon, uh, not only a wonderful professional colleague of mine in the attorney general world, but also a good friend uh, for being with us on this podcast today. And and um, we've found that as we've done these, we we you know I learn a lot about my colleagues and the work they do, and our uh, listening public does as well. So. Let's get uh, uh, right into this. Uh, as you know, uh, and I'm going to call you, if you don't mind, because we are friends a little informally, uh, Ellen, and hopefully you'll call me Tim, if that's okay that's with great. you, General. That is fantastic. Uh, thank you. Great. I'm at you one bet. time say thank you, General Fox. And now, Tim, great to be with you. <laughs> great to be with you, too. Well, uh, just yesterday, as a matter of fact, uh, we were on a Zoom panel together, which uh, was wonderful with several other uh, great panelists. And as you know, uh, that panel and my presidential initiative for the National Association of Attorneys General is focusing on the topic of transformational leadership and civility with a goal of encouraging and promoting collaboration among the state, territorial, and District of Columbia attorneys general, regardless of their political party. Uh, And, you know, you were a newly minted attorney general uh, in 2013. At the same time I was, we were both elected in 2012. And and by the way, you uh, broke one of those uh, glass ceilings as the first woman attorney general in the history of of Oregon. We're still waiting for that honor and privilege in Montana, and I have no doubt it'll come soon. But um, And during that time, you and I have not only worked on a lot of matters together, along with our attorney general colleagues across the nation, uh, multi-state letters, uh, litigation, investigations, a lot of great work, but we've become friends. And and uh, to the point, in fact, when I uh, called several years ago to ask if you uh, would perform the marriage ceremony for my daughter, Laura, and her uh, then fiance, Adam. You jumped right at it and, and uh, had a great ceremony in your kitchen, as you recall. <laughs> How fun was that? It was amazing. It was an honor to be asked, uh, and I hope they're doing well. In fact, I hear they're expecting a child, and I'm just thrilled about that. Yes, and of course, as you know, they live in Oregon, and so... Uh, this census won't be counting uh, what will be our new grandson, but in 10 years, uh, he'll be in the next <laughs> census. And who knows, hopefully maybe still in Oregon. But, but uh, yeah. so, you know, you have worked with uh, not only the current 56 uh, state territorial and district of Columbia attorneys general in, in many different important matters that not only affect your constituents in Oregon, but in fact, uh, the entire nation. Uh, and I just wanted to ask, what, what have you learned uh, from now seven-plus years, you're in your eighth year in office, from working across party lines with our attorney general colleagues? 
What I have learned is that, first of all, I love my attorney general colleagues. Uh, they're my, my new group of friends. Um, and I'm just delighted to have had the chance to get to know so many amazing public servants. We have so much in common, first of all. We are not only are all public servants, but we're all educated in the law. You know, wherever we went to law school, I happen to be a duck, uh, having gone to the University of Oregon. But, you know, what we, who we are is informed by many things, but it includes our education. And we all are about getting things done for the good of the people. And that was really what we were talking about uh, yesterday in the program, which I really uh, was just honored to be a part of with the great panelists that you selected. So what I've learned is that we're all good people and we have so much more in common than we have differences. And that in fact, the attorney general, the office of attorney general, I think is, this may surprise you, but I think it's the least partisan office of all those political offices. And I, I do think it's because we're lawyers and we believe in the rule of law. And that's what we do day in and day out. As we look out for people, we have you know a portfolio that's really kind of a, a amazingly broad one of consumer protection, of criminal justice, of looking out for seniors, of you know, looking out for the protection of the environment, but most of all, those who are the most vulnerable in our communities. And I think we all take that very seriously. Well, I would agree. And, and uh, you mentioned, you know, that each of us uh, has had, you know, a different set of life's experiences and backgrounds, including going to, to different uh, colleges and universities. Uh, and your uh, particular uh, professional background uh, is somewhat unique, uh, having been the Oregon Attorney General since uh, January of 2013, elected in 2012. Um, what can you tell us about the fact that you have been a prosecutor and, in fact, a judge as well? How, how has that, those experience and those roles uh, impacted your perspective and, and the way you conduct yourself and your duties as Attorney General? Well, of course, we all come with our backgrounds and our experiences, and I, I suppose mine is a little bit unique. There aren't too many AGs. I think there's maybe two of us right now who were previously judges. Um, Ashley Moody in Florida also is a former judge. But most of us uh, come from maybe more of a prosecutorial background, which I do as well, or other type of political work. A number of our colleagues are formerly in the state legislatures. So, you know, whatever you bring is, is a value. And that's what's so important, I think, about having diversity, all kinds of diversity in the profession and in the, uh, the political side of the work that, uh, that we do. So in my case, I actually started out in private practice for five years, and I really did a mostly criminal defense, which a lot of people don't realize. And then I was um, solicited to become an assistant United States attorney by a very progressive U.S. attorney here in Oregon at the time by the name of Sid Lezak. He really became my mentor. Sid had survived, literally survived, 12 different United States attorneys general, if you can believe that. He was somebody who was who really ran an apolitical office. You know, you would never even know. I think he was a Democrat, but you wouldn't know because he flip-flopped back and forth through all these administrations. And the reason was that he 
was a true statesman like you. He was apolitical and he ran the office that way. And that's how I learned. I was, I think, something like 28 years old when I was uh, when I joined that office. And then about eight years later, maybe a little bit too soon, uh, I left in order to become a judge. And when I say too soon, it's because I really loved that job and I would have probably stayed there forever. Uh, And I also was a little young to become a judge, but there weren't too many women at that time in Oregon, at least. And I think most throughout the country in judicial positions. So I was honored, of course, to be appointed and then elected in Oregon. We have to be elected to be state court judges. These are are state court positions. And so my focus for uh, 20 plus years after that was on being a, uh, a judge. And of course, the qualities and the traits of a judge uh, should be, and hopefully I, um, you know, I carried this out, uh, a collegial um, judge, fair-minded, impartial, promoting trust and confidence in the legal and the judicial profession, and doing the right thing. And that's what I tried to do for all those years. It was a nonpartisan position. So honestly, it was much later in life that I uh, became uh, more political in the sense of you know, running for a, an office that, that actually requires uh, a political party affiliation in Oregon. Yeah, and that's the, that's really uh, interesting with your background and, and and much of that I didn't I didn't realize. Although we have talked uh, about some of your background, and uh, you know, I was a geologist as an undergraduate and uh, can, considered myself a scientist before going to law school and. Uh, really studied environmental law in, in law school and, in fact, was once an environmental lawyer for the state of Montana. And so there, that's yeah. an area that, yeah, that I, I, I you know, that. tend to gravitate <laughs> towards. And uh, we have, you know, in the West in particular, you know, I we take pride in the natural beauty of Oregon and Montana and places like that. And and so uh, that's something that's that I'm passionate about as well. So with my background and, and I was a public defender many years ago, but never a prosecutor. Oh my gosh. Uh, like you. I did yeah. not know that. I did not realize <laughs> that. Wow. Well, yeah, it just goes to show. I think, uh, we try to find roles, jobs, if you will. I hardly ever, I don't know about you. I don't think of AG as a job, but I guess it is. I get a paycheck. Um, so I think <laughs> about, um, how I get to do what I love and, you know, really I started out, of gravitating towards consumer protection in law school. Uh, even worked for one of the PURGs, the public interest research groups, and got to do some early sort of policy work in those areas. And to, to a degree, that got put on hold during my judicial years because, you know, as a judge, you pretty much do whatever comes your way. But getting, in, getting to be AG, I'm now back in that world and realized that's partly why I love what I do so much is that, that's what I started out doing way back in my 20s. As you collectively look across the nation at our colleagues, you see some of that, uh, you know, it's evident that they, for whatever reason, have interests in certain areas. And, and perhaps a lot of it is because of their life's experiences and professional experiences. But I know that there's another area that, that you are very passionate about, and that's protecting uh, not only the just generally the most vulnerable in our society, but 
those who have worked so long and contributed to our society so long and are later in life, uh, and as you know, they tend to be targeted by uh, all manner of uh, you know fraud artists, scammers, and including family members, unfortunately, who abuse our elder uh, citizens. And you, I believe, are hosting a your fifth annual elder abuse conference this October, which I believe you said you're going to have to do virtually now. Uh, is that right? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, um, we had to cancel this year's conference, and we're talking about whether we can pull it off virtually. But we certainly will uh, come back uh, the following year and and have a great conference. And I I want you to be a part of it, Tim. I hope you'll join us uh, because what what we love about it is the opportunity to connect in person. That's that's why it's so difficult to to uh, pivot to virtual when that's the goal is to get people right. at the table together chatting about what they're doing and trying to find ways to first to make some very difficult cases. As you know, in the area of elder abuse, it's challenging because of the family involvement, which is really uh, awful when you discover that there's fam- exploitation by family members, but also just the, the cognitive difficulties uh, in terms of witness availability and um, memory and all the things that you need in order to make a case of elder abuse. So what we try to do, of course, and I know all of our AGs do this work to some degree is to have a real focus on education and prevention. And we have a, a fun series that we do called scam jams and we do it with ARP, uh, the uh, American association of retired people. And we do it with some of the other state agencies. And we really try to provide a lot of materials and teach our seniors how to avoid getting scammed and defrauded. But unfortunately we still have to thousands of reports of, of abuse every year. Um, you know, as recently as five years ago, it was up to 40,000 reports mm. of elder abuse. Now, not all of those well, are actually substantiated, but we decided based on that, I went to the legislature and got funding for an elder abuse, criminal elder abuse unit, which works with our district attorneys and law enforcement and uh, our Medicaid fraud unit, which many of our offices have, and our consumer protection division. So we aggressively pursue individuals who victimize elder Oregonians and have this focus on education and outreach as well. And that that's great. And I, I wasn't aware that you were able to get uh, that uh, section in your office to focus on this area by going to the legislature. We, um, we're doing something, I think, that's a, a little bit unique. Um, we've teamed up with the office of our Commissioner of Securities and Insurance um, a little over a year ago because, as you know, there are lots of different agencies at every level that, that deal with elder abuse. Um, and oftentimes it's difficult when, when someone suspects elder abuse uh, or when one of our elder citizens is abused, to understand where they need to go. And we felt we needed to better coordinate those things, particularly in rural areas, which Oregon has as well, where uh, our, you know, all citizens can tend to be underserved by uh, the agencies that are there to help them. So we've, uh, we actually got Governor Bullock, who you probably know is a former attorney general. Of course. Uh, to uh, designate this council that we put together. We call it the uh, Eastern Montana Elder Justice Council, and it's made up of uh, all manner of professionals, including prosecutors, 
uh, he he uh, designated them as a criminal justice agency. So under our statute, um, they can share confidential criminal justice information um, so that we can actually, you know, identify and investigate uh, allegations of elder abuse and then you know, build these cases with our prosecutors, which you know much more about because uh, you are a prosecutor. So, well, I applaud you, uh, Ellen, for your work in that area. Um, you, you also, you know, we've talked about the, the important role that attorneys general can uh, play uh, in addressing the student loan crisis in our country. Another unfortunate reality that uh, uh, oftentimes there are uh, illegitimate, if you will, uh, or in fact, even to some degree, criminals out there who are exploiting people who are just trying to get an education, and it can be very expensive and. And oftentimes they they pay a lot of money and they don't get uh, what they bargained for. And, and I know this is an area where you, again, have spearheaded legislation in your state to pass a student loan bill of rights. Can you share with us any yes. updates on your efforts to protect student borrowers from these kinds of misleading and deceptive student loan practices, not only in Oregon, because you've sure. been a leader nationwide as well? Oh, thanks, Tim. Thanks for asking. What's well, interesting, you picked the two areas uh, that I've really focused on by having a national symposia here in Oregon. Uh, both of them started out more local, but uh, it was clear that there was interest throughout the country. And CWAG has been very involved with helping me to, uh, to make the student debt crisis a focus of my attention and work as AG. And in fact, when I was chairing CWAG, that was my my initiative for the year. So that was the first year, I don't even remember what year that was, I think about four years ago, uh, that we had our first national symposia on the student debt crisis. And when we just had another one last year, and I called it um, the student debt crisis lives on hold. And of course, what we mean by that is that uh, young people are really having trouble moving on with their lives. They are not able to do the things you and I did uh, when they, you know, shortly after graduating because of the debt that they hold as a result of their education. And in some cases, of course, we have, you know, some schools that should never be in, have been in business in the first place. Some of the for-profit mm-hmm. schools, I'm afraid, just are looking out for their own bottom line and financing themselves through, uh, through you know, the, the federal loan process, which is just not right. But putting that aside, uh, many, many millions of students uh, obtain a good education, but they still are saddled with debt. And so we need to do something to make sure that those students, when they, after they graduate, before they become seniors, uh, like us, um, have the ability to live their lives, to buy a house, to have a family, to, you know, get a car, to, to own a business if they choose to do that. And they have to qualify. And, you know, in order to qualify, you have to go to the bank and you have to, to show what your assets are and what your liabilities are. And those liabilities often are, you know, thousands of dollars in education-related debt. So some of the things that we're doing, in addition to these annual symposia where we bring experts together and AGs and the folks in the AGs consumer protection uh, sections who are working in these areas. Um, In fact, I even invented a uh, program where everybody had to develop their own board game uh, to demonstrate how to, uh, how to 
uh, deal with the student debt loan issue. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. <laughs> but uh, other than board games uh, and symposia, we have been reasonably successful at our legislature in bringing some uh, some policy. And I know many other states have as well. In fact, in some uh, cases are ahead of us with their student loan bill of rights. But the first one that we did that was a, a good successful bill was quite simple. We basically worked to pass a law requiring Oregon colleges and universities to send their students annual, easy to understand letters explaining the scope of their federal educational debt, including the amount of the loans taken out, what the potential total payment over the life of the loan could be. And we've seen that with some other states that were ahead of us on that, that it actually has reduced the amount of money that students are borrowing without leaving school, but just being more more aware and maybe a little more responsible about how they're using that money because there's some discretionary uh, loan money that students get. It's not all for tuition. And uh, so it's, it's uh, important to be aware of what your payments are going to look like. If you don't know, and then you suddenly graduate and six months later you get your first bill, it can be a real shock. And that's where the loan servicers kick in. And that's the other area that's so critical. And honestly, we haven't succeeded yet in getting what I want as a part of our Bill of Rights. And that is the basic consumer protection of licensing the businesses that service the student debt at the back end. So this is legislation that uh, would would not only provide for licensing, but would create a, an ombudsperson to educate borrowers who are navigating their debt and their, and managing and refinancing potentially and consolidating and all the things that you might want to do or need to do in order to move on with your life. So those are some of the areas that we're working on still and we're hoping at the next legislative session to get uh, to get that group of bills passed. Um, I just uh, about a week ago delivered the keynote address at an interesting conference, a virtual conference uh, put on by the Student Borrower Protection Center on something called income share agreements. And that's kind of a novel approach. The idea is that you, um, I'm not an expert on this, but the idea mm-hmm. is that after you, once you have a job, uh, you actually have committed in advance to a certain percentage of your income paying back your loan so that you're kind of, uh, can, can organize your life better and manage your bills better uh, once you are out of school and employed. Well, that's one of the challenges of this world that we work in, Ellen, is that, as you said, you know, th- these didn't seem to be issues when we were going to college uh, because, uh, you know, we didn't have social media or or at least I didn't. I think you're younger than I am, but we didn't have the, <laughs> no, no, the internet. No, no, I, I didn't either. And, and you want to know what I paid for law school? I'm not even going to tell you because I, I worry that people are going to start throwing things at me. These young kids who have, uh, you know, had to, to mortgage mortgage their lives. But I think we were very lucky, very lucky. And, you know, it used to be that the state subsidized more education than it does today, at least in my state. Uh, so it's just gotten really expensive to go to school. And it has to be worth, well, you, worthwhile. Right. Well, then you got to be able to get a job. So, well, one of the benefits <laughs> of our of the relationships that we've built through the National Association of Attorneys General is learning from one one another on things like human trafficking and and elder abuse and and uh, student loan debt crisis, et cetera. And uh, you know, we we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can learn from one another. 
Uh, and, you know, I've certainly done a lot of that while I've been attorney general. And, and I think other attorneys general have done as well. And the other, you know, I think fulfilling thing about this job is that you have, you know, a direct ability to make an impact for the people you serve and the nation. Um, and so the work that you do not only benefits, uh, for instance, in the student loan debt crisis world, uh, the, you know, students in this era or at this time, uh, but, you know, future generations as well. So thank you for your work in, in all of those areas. And speaking of young people, um, I, you know, I know that, you, for instance, yesterday you highlighted the fact that you had mentors in your life that invested in you um, and that, you know, in, by a, in a large part, that's why you've been so successful, uh, that you've been able to attain a leadership uh, position and lead. Can you share with us what advice uh, you would give to young people who perhaps are considering a career in public service or more specifically uh, working in the office of uh, an attorney general? Well, I always encourage young people, uh, law students, clerks uh, for judges to consider a career in our office. Um, You know, it, it doesn't necessarily pay as well as, say, private practice might. But I talk to them about a number of things. And one is the balance in your personal life, in your career. I think we provide an opportunity for a really great, uh, you know, future in terms of being able to have that balance. We also create, I think, much earlier opportunities for really substantive law work and an opportunity to develop a career, whether or not you stay in public service and in our office. But where do you get the chance to literally, you know, be handed a file and go to court with mentoring from, you know, the the experienced lawyers in the office, as opposed to perhaps a a fancy private firm where you're going to be doing mostly research and um, maybe document review for the first several years of your career. You know, how many young lawyers in private practice have tried cases? How many in my office have? practically all who want to. So I would say that, you know, encouraging young people to seek out relationships with mentors in fields that interest them to take some risks and know it's a good time in your life, especially before, maybe before you've uh, made those financial commitments uh, to try some things out. And, you know, if you can't get a job in the office, maybe you can find some kind of an internship or a clerkship uh, and that will then bring you to the attention of those who would be your references, your, your, you know, not only your mentors and your role models, but the people that would actually be able to help you get a job in either this office or perhaps in Tim Fox's office. And let me just add that my, one of my former externs, uh, her name is Aurora, has recently gone back home to Montana from Oregon, and she's working in your office now. So that's a beautiful example, I think, of someone I was able to give her a reference because she had actually worked for me when I was on the Court of Appeals. And uh, she is just going to be a marvelous um, assistant attorney general for you, I believe. Well, absolutely. And um, we we don't try to steal folks from uh, other attorney general offices that when it works out (laughs) that uh, we can get great people who had wonderful experiences in in, uh, for instance, your office, we're glad to have them come home. 
Well, uh, Oregon Attorney General Alan Rosenblum uh, and my friend uh, Alan, uh, I just uh, want to thank you once again for spending this time uh, with us uh, on this podcast. And um, I look forward to seeing you uh, in person sometime soon. And thank you for your great work in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic as well, uh, protecting uh, your citizens. So uh, thank I you, wish Tim. you well. I, I just can can I just add that I think your choice of transform- transformational leadership and civility for your theme for this year is an inspired one. And I'm very excited about the series that you've begun. And I want to thank you for the honor of being part of the podcast series as well. Absolutely, uh, Ellen. I'm honored to, uh, to call you my colleague and friend and have you as a part uh, of the uh, this presidential initiative, because I think you exhibit all of those qualities of, of a great leader that uh, others should emulate. So uh, I hope to be in your great state sometime soon to meet my new grandson. I know my wife will be yes. there uh, <laughs> next month and uh, and we'll celebrate that hopefully in person sometime soon. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much, Tim. Take care. Thank you, Ellen. You too. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The People's Lawyer. We look forward to bringing you additional insights about the work of state attorneys general, including conversations with individual AGs about important legal issues in future episodes. In the meantime, feel free to visit us at naag.org or email podcast at nag.org.